0: Will you please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1? James chapter 1. The guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way down the aisle. If you need one, get their attention. They'll get a Bible that's already marked to James chapter 1. You don't have to fumble around to find it. And we want everybody to own a Bible. Keep that as our gift to you. And we're continuing our series through the book of James. We'll be finishing chapter 1 and getting into chapter 2 today. The title of that series is on the screen behind me, Real Faith, Genuine Faith, Authentic Faith. Faith, as we have seen in your New Testament, is the word for belief, and so the theme of the book of James, and thus the title for the series is, What Constitutes Genuine, Authentic Belief? We say we believe particular things. James says, if we really believe those things, then our lives will look a particular way, and thus a number of tests of a living faith in the book of James. We'll look there in just a moment, but let's ask the Lord. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we look at his word. Father, we thank you that we can gather as your people around the word that you have given us to instruct us about yourself, about ourselves, and about how you would have us to live. Lord, we ask that you would grant us now clear minds and open hearts as we look into the pages of Holy Scripture and that we would leave this place changed and better equipped to serve our God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We were last in the book of James two weeks ago. Last week we were treated to the ministry of Dr. Jack Clem from Clearwater Christian College in Clearwater, Florida, so we've had a week off and I will in just a bit take a few moments to bring you up to speed on where it is we left off, and then we'll continue in our study. My first year of college, uh, I took a speech class. And each student in the class was to give several speeches of different types during that semester. So there was humorous speech, an impromptu speech, a, a demonstrative speech. There were six of these, as I recall. And the speeches that I was treated to by my fellow freshmen were an experience in themselves. And the reaction of the professor was worth the price of tuition. One of the types of speech that we had to give was a demonstrative. And so you were to demonstrate how to do something. And one guy brought in a guitar to show how you put strings on a guitar and how you tune it. And he started out okay saying some of you may have a guitar stuffed in your closet that you haven't pulled out for a long time you don't know what to do with it so he said I'm going to show you how to string and tune it so you can make use of it so he took out a string he placed it on the guitar and then he explained as he was doing it what he was doing that took a couple of minutes and then after the first string he took out a second string and he did the same thing but he clearly had no more to say And you knew he was in trouble when, while putting on that second string, he just decided to open it up for questions. Well, there were no questions. And after the second string, in the midst of this uncomfortable silence, he pulled out a third string. Did you know a guitar has six strings on it? Well, the prophet did, and he interjected, you're going to torture us with this four more times? Now, one of the other assignments was to give an entertaining, humorous speech. And I remember one classmate getting up for that. He was extremely nervous, lip quivering, hand shaking, And he started out with this. The other night, my family and I were in our living room, and all of a sudden, this big rat. And then he stopped. And he said, I'm sorry, can I start over? And so he began again. The other night, my family and I were in our living room. All of a sudden, this big rat. And then he stopped. I'm sorry. And he started over. The other night, my family and I were in our living room. All of a sudden, this big rat. And he always did the big rat really loud. And he stopped in that same place again. But before he could start over, the professor said, All right, we've got the big rat. Can we move on from there? And the poor young man was so flustered, he never finished his speech. The professor would grade these speeches right away so you knew what your grade was as you left class. I remember being told by the students what they had received. And as bad as that guitar speech was, he got a B. The guy with the rat story was able to try again on a different day. He finished a different speech, no rat. And though it was still a bit painful, he also got to be. So when I had to give my speeches, I really wasn't very nervous. Because, one, I had seen the competition. <laughs> and two, the high school that I attended required us to give oral presentations a number of times. I also grew up in church, in front of the church, singing and sometimes teaching. The first speech that I gave was uh, an informative speech. And I chose the topic of scientific evidence for creation. And I was informing that there is such evidence for a created universe. And I presented it pretty clearly within the time frame, met all the requirements, but my grade was a C. And as I shared this with my classmates, they were incredulous, I was as well. The second speech I gave was a persuasive speech. You're supposed to persuade the audience of something. And my topic was that abortion should be against the law. Again, pretty clear within the allotted time. No negative comments from the prof. It met all the requirements. What was my grade? C. I surmised that he was not judging me on my presentation, but on the content of what I said. And that was not part of the stated criteria. I went to talk to him, and he gave no reasons for my downgrade, and the C's stood. But the next four speeches, humorous, demonstrative, impromptu, I can't remember the other one, but the content was non-controversial, and I got A's on all of those. It's very difficult to be evaluated by criteria that are either unknown Or uncertain, they change from day to day. Or unreliable, like judges in gymnastics at the Olympics. Or a college speech class. But friends, God gives clear, unbiased, unchanging standards of evaluation for us that are all found in his word. But the problem for us is that we often substitute our own criteria for God's when we evaluate both ourselves and when we evaluate others. And James is telling us now, at the end of James chapter 1 and now into chapter 2, that the standard for evaluation of ourselves and of others is indeed nothing other than Holy Scripture, the Word of God, His Word to us. And so James has told us in verses 19 through 25 of James chapter 1, about the centrality of the Word to our lives as Christians. And in verse 9, he tells us that we need to be ready to hear what God says to us in His Word. In verse 21, he tells us that this should all be natural for us because when we were supernaturally born again, it was by the Word that has been implanted in us. And that's why then verse 22 of chapter 1 famously says, be doers of the word and not merely hearers. But here's the danger. As we saw two weeks ago, you can look at what the word says to do and you can begin to actually do many of the most obvious and perhaps easiest things that the Bible tells us. And so the word of God says, read the word of God. And you start doing that. In the Word of God, the Bible says to pray. And you start doing that. And it says to attend church. And you do that. And it says to give. And you start doing that. In short, in doing what the Bible says, I can become a religious activist. Doing many of the things the Bible says to do, but failing to implement many other, hear this, many other less obvious requirements. And as a result, we can judge ourselves, evaluate ourselves to be successful. All because we've used an insufficient standard. I'm spiritual because I read the Bible. I'm pleasing to God because I pray or because I go to church or because I give money. But to all of that, God says in verse 26 of chapter 1, If anyone considers himself religious, and yet does not, now notice, does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself, and his religion is worthless, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world." I say in the outline that's inserted in your program, I encourage you to take a look at that. That, as we saw two weeks ago, we evaluate ourselves by our accomplishments. And very often that applies to our spiritual life, our religious life as well. We evaluate ourselves before God based upon the stuff we do, a kind of checklist, a limited checklist, as I've said very often, but a checklist that we're... Pleased with. And when verses 26 and 27 speak of one who is religious or religion, one commentator says it's a designation of an individual who carefully performs religious ceremonies and who feels satisfied that as a result he's obedient to the demands of the word. And so we set up this criteria, limited criteria of stuff we do, evaluate ourselves by those accomplishments, and when we do that, we are very much like the religious leaders in Jesus' day, with whom he had numerous confrontations, as you'll recall. Jesus told a story about one of them, a Pharisee that is an extremely religious guy, crossed all his religious T's, dotted all his religious eyes, and Jesus says this Pharisee stood up and he prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. So you see that he had this religious checklist idea, right? This is what I do, therefore I'm acceptable to God. The problem with that is that our list may well not match God's list. We set up a list that we can meet, that's easy for us to meet. God says it goes much deeper than that. It goes to how you talk. It goes to how you treat other people. It goes to, as we're going to see, the values that you hold and whether or not those are values from God or values from the world. So one problem is my list can be a truncated list that I've created. Another problem with this approach, this religious ceremonial checklist kind of approach is I can do things but do them merely mechanically. And the Bible speaks to this many times. One such place is in... The first part of your Bible. in God speaking through Isaiah says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So I can do the list mechanically, but my heart is not in it. Or I can do what I do for the wrong reasons. And Jesus spoke of this when he said, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces. Here's why they do it. Here's their motivation to show men that they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. And then another problem with this religious checklist approach that we create for ourselves is this, that very often there is no end to what we can set up to do as an evaluation of our own spirituality if we want to create our own criteria. Jesus confronted that in the religious leaders of his day as well. He said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. Moses said, honor your father and your mother. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. And thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And then he says you do many things like that. So I've got this checklist. It's a subset of the list that God gives. The stuff I want to do, the stuff that's easiest for me to do, the stuff that perhaps I grew up doing. And I might add things to my list that are not in the word of God. And then... I judge other people and their spirituality by these extra-biblical rules. I set them up. God didn't say them. But if I do them and you don't, I judge you harshly. And worst of all, as long as our standard of evaluation is merely what we do, then we can assume, friends, that all is well with us if we're doing things like reading the Bible, praying and attending and giving, and those are all things we should do. But that's the worst of all because, you see, as long as we see ourselves as doing okay, we will not see our need for Christ. So God gives us a better, more accurate measure by which we are to evaluate ourselves and others. We tend to evaluate ourselves by our accomplishments, but I say in your outline that we should evaluate ourselves by full obedience. And James here is giving criteria for moving beyond only externals. These are not the only criteria in Scripture that he gives in verses 26 and 27. But they make the point that our righteousness must exceed that of those like the Pharisees that Jesus encountered and confronted. The theme of these verses is that we have not arrived when we've done the religious stuff. In James throughout chapter 1 and on through the book of James, he is focused on internal matters. He's focused on character. And that's why at the very beginning of the book, he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the trying of what you believe, the trying of your faith, develops character. It develops perseverance. And so these external circumstances are good. You can face them with joy because they're developing something extremely important, your internal character. He says in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, when someone is tempted by sin, do you remember he is drawn away, dragged away, how? Because of his own evil desire. Internal character. That's the issue. It necessitates a new birth, a new character imparted to us. That's why verse 18 of chapter 1 tells us, we were given this new birth through the word of, the word of God. And then chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, speaks of words and attitudes that we're to, to have. Yes, we're to do the Word, but the doing is not merely, friends, external religious activity, but it goes much deeper to our words and how we love and whether or not we are truly pure before God. And that's what he tells us in verses 26 and 27. Obedience to God's Word, I say in the outline, requires much more than external performance. It means that we are careful in relation to our speech. It means, as we saw two weeks ago, that we are compassionate in our relation to others, and in particular in our attitude and compassion toward others. And why is that? Because this is how God is compassionate toward others. The Bible says of God, The Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, shows no partiality, accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. And that's what verse 26 tells us. Verse 27 tells us that those who are truly religious look after the orphan and the widow. This is because God does this. The Bible says of our God that He's a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in His holy dwelling. Obedience to God's Word requires much more than external performance. It means that we are careful in relation to our speech, compassionate in our relation to others. And I say thirdly in your outline, that we are clean in relation to the world. Now, you say to yourself, finally, something that I've got down. I know i got a problem with the way I talk. I know I'm not as compassionate as I should be. You beat me up on that two weeks ago. But on this worldliness thing, I've got that down. At least I'm not, of all things, I'm not worldly. Well, before we congratulate ourselves, let's make sure we know what the Bible means when it speaks of the world and worldliness. Because verse 27 says, true religion that God our Father accepts is this, to care for widows and orphans in their affliction, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Now we usually think of the world as our physical surroundings, and worldliness then is what most of the world's inhabitants, people who don't know Jesus, do. So they drink, we don't. They gamble, we don't. They carouse, we don't. They curse, we don't. They sleep in on Sunday, we sleep at church on Sunday. Uh, uh, You're awake enough to laugh at that, that's good. So for us, the, the world is a place, and worldliness is what people do. But that's not the way the Bible defines either. The night before Jesus died, he prayed a long and marvelous prayer. For his first followers and those that would come after them, you and me. And Jesus says this to the Father. My followers are in the world. But they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. You see, the problem with the world and worldliness in Scripture is not the physical location it's not where you are but rather it is the source from which you derive what you love what you believe what you value as we'll see in a bit that those things are not of the world but rather they are of the Father for those that are not worldly Paul makes this clear in another context when he writes I have written I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now notice, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy, swindlers, idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave this world. So the problem is not your physical location. But he says, now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but lives a life that is clearly inconsistent, sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, slanderer, drunkard, or swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. And so worldliness in the Bible is not our location, it's the source. It's being of the world, of our values, of our loves, of our desires. And that's why the Bible says, in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, 1 John 2, 15 and 16, do not love the world. Or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Everything in the world. And then it defines what's in the world. Everything in the world. The cravings of sinful man. The desires of his eyes. The boasting of what he has and does. These come not from the Father, but from the world. Do you all see then that worldliness is what we love? What we desire? What we value? And so one author has given this lengthy definition of the world. The world is the thoughts, the opinions, the maxims, the speculations, the hopes, the impulses, the aims, the aspirations at any given time current in the world, which at every moment of our lives we inhale, again inevitably exhale. Wow. There will be a test. Let me give you an easier working definition. Worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture. Fallen values expressed in culture. Sinful, distorted, fallen values that are expressed in the way those who derive their values from the world live, our culture. Worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture. Now with that then, you and I should not so easily exonerate ourselves from not being worldly. Because the truth is, you and I can very easily adopt, absorb, and demonstrate the values of the world rather than the values of our Father. The proprietor of a blog that caters mostly to fundamentalists and recovering fundamentalists wrote an article on worldliness several years ago. And this is how he started it. In fundamentalist parlance, the word worldly nearly always refers to matters of fashion and entertainment. It involves how a person dresses, what sort of places he goes and the things he reads, views, or listens to consequently many feel that if they just stay away from certain things they are safe from worldliness in some cases the attitude goes a step further as long as I have the proper appearance never go to the proscribed places or take in the proscribed materials I'm not only free of worldliness but I'm also basically a good Christian and he says externals focused preaching and institutional rules reinforce the attitude and plain human laziness gives it a cozy home. For many, avoiding the quote worldly fashions and entertainments list is easy. They grow up with the list, have never lived any other way, and never spend time with anyone who lives differently. And the consequence is often autopilot Christianity. I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with those who do is a natural, thoughtless, and non-sacrificial as and breathing. And for all too many, this thinking leads yet another step downward into self-righteousness and judgmentalism. If in some dark corner of our hearts we feel that we've mostly mastered holy living, and that's actually pretty easy, we become impatient with those who struggle with or do not accept our vision of what clean living is all about and then he finishes so we would all do well to look long hard and often at the true nature of worldliness limiting the concept of worldliness to matters of dress and entertainment not only misses the bullseye but also barely nicks the bale of straw supporting the target in reality there are innumerable expressions of worldliness and many are not visible at all. Dear friend, you and I can demonstrate our love of the world, our internal affection for the world, indeed by our external actions. But you can also be worldly spending all of your time with Christian people and even at church. And you won't express it, most likely, in obvious vices like carousing or gambling or substance abuse or sexual promiscuity. To put it another way, the religious person will not be characterized by licentious worldliness, but rather by legalistic worldliness. You won't value many of the things the world values, but you will value others. While you may not drink and gamble and carouse you will still value yourself over others. Isn't that a worldly value? Look out for number one. That's why James says in chapter 4, which we'll get to perhaps before the Lord returns, but in James chapter 4, and verse 4, he says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? And it's in the context of how we relate to one another and the battles and the arguments we have and how we go about those. James calls that worldliness. Friends, hear this. In the very way that we seek to avoid worldliness, we can demonstrate it you know that many people who take this external approach and it's those people and it's the stuff they do and the list and I stay away from the list and therefore I'm not worldly have tended to separate and isolate themselves then from perceived worldlings. And in that very pursuit of avoiding worldliness in that way, we actually demonstrate it. By isolating ourselves from others, we're displaying what the world values. What's best for me? You wouldn't be saved if your Savior did what was best for Him. The night before He died, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. If we only did what was convenient for us or what's enjoyable for us, For me. And in your condemnation of the worldly, you can show your worldliness as well. When you speak of others in judgmental tones, those people are creepy. You ever talk that way? You ever think that way? Those people, I don't understand these freaks around me. And in doing that, you demonstrate the same attitude as the world. I'm better than you because of what I've done, because of what I've accomplished, because of where I am. Now, let's take it a bit deeper. Consider the stuff you worry about and tell me if you're worldly. Do you worry about money? Let me tell you why you worry about money. Because you value money. Well, guess what? The world values money. If you find yourself worrying about your money or your health or your safety, I can't do that. I can't venture out and do that. Something bad might happen. Christians have been venturing out for centuries, friends. Because they value something beyond this world. They have better possessions, the writer of Hebrews says. And so with all of that, we're still worldly in what we value. But we're self-satisfied because we keep the list that we made. And after all of that, at least we've got one thing they don't have, religion. We go to church. We know some Bible. We're saved, perhaps. Friends, the deeper that we look at ourselves, the more loving you will become toward others. If you look at yourself only superficially, only from the outside, then you will see a fine, upstanding, responsible, tax-paying, church-going, Bible-knowing, middle-class, suburban Christian, exactly what Jesus died for. Right? Right? If you look at yourself only from the outside, you look pretty good. If you look at others only from the outside, they don't look so good to you. And that's why James transitions in chapter 2 to speaking about how we view others. There's how we view ourselves, and do we look internally? Do we look at how we speak? Do we look at our compassion for others? Do we look at our cleanness as it relates to the world, the world defined as God defines it. And then he tells us in chapter 2 that we should evaluate others by their character. We evaluate others not by externals, just like we don't evaluate ourselves primarily by externals. We don't do that with others either. Notice chapter 2. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Now the word that is translated favoritism means literally this. To receive a face. When it says don't show favoritism, literally it is saying do not receive a face it's kind of a clumsy way for us to say this, that you don't accept or reject someone based upon externals. And so D. Edmund Hebert, a commentator, says it denotes a biased judgment based on external circumstances such as rank, wealth, or race, disregarding the intrinsic merit of the person involved. And you and I do it all the time. We look at someone in their condition. We look at someone and their ethnicity and their race and we make judgments about them. And God says, you don't evaluate based upon externals, based upon a face. You don't show favoritism. One of the great speeches of the 20th century was delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King on the occasion of the Civil Rights March on Washington in 1963 in which he said, as you have heard, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed, that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. He went on to say I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. And in so doing he was saying precisely what James instructs for us as we evaluate others. Chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 teaches that we must judge ourselves accurately. And now in chapter 2, we're going to be told that we must judge others accurately. And so James goes on to say, verse 2 of chapter 2, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes, and you say, here's a seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves? And become judges with evil thoughts. Why does God side with the poor guy? Think about this for a moment. You got two people who come in, and yet in both cases, there is an evaluation of how they're dressed. And Based upon the evaluation, favor is shown to the obviously wealthy fellow. And God sides with the poor fellow. Now, now why does he do that? The rich guy's been judged as well. But God's apparently okay with that. Why? Because God cares about the vulnerable. That's why verse 27 of chapter 1 said, if you're truly spiritual, you will care for widows and orphans in their affliction. God sides with the vulnerable. The truth is, they cannot help we we cannot help but identify based upon external issues. We may know someone is poor by their demeanor and their dress. So God hear this does not condemn identifying someone's circumstances by externals. He condemns determining their worth by externals. We may identify one's condition or circumstances for the purpose of determining what they can do for me. That's what's happening with the wealthy guy. Or we may identify one's condition and circumstances for the purpose of determining what we can do for them. And so all those, although those in good circumstances can be misjudged based on externals also, God focuses on the poor because they're not only being judged inappropriately, they're vulnerable and it will harm them. And our God has special concern for the weak and the vulnerable. As you evaluate yourself, friends, consider that God looks deeper than we ever could. And we cannot measure up to His most accurate standard, not our religious checklist. And so as a result of that, you should thank God for Jesus. Because I really can't meet up to the true standard. But Jesus Christ did what I cannot do. And as you evaluate others... Because of Jesus, you can see them as fellow image bearers, whatever color they are, whatever circumstances they bear. And you can see them not as tools for you, but as opportunities for Christ to be exalted as you selflessly show His love and compassion to them. I say in your take-home truth at the bottom of your outline, growth in obedience requires that we see ourselves and others as God does. And how does God see us? From the inside out. If you're going to evaluate yourself and others that way, you are going to see you do not measure up and you will no longer have the judgmental attitude that you have toward others now. And the only remedy for you and for me then to measure up to God's real standard is the Lord Jesus who lived the life that you should have lived. He died the death that we deserved. And so you ask him to apply what he has done to you. Then and only then will you have the standing that you need before God. And then you can look at other people. Hear this, friends. You can look at other people as the needy recipients of the grace of God that you have received in an undeserving fashion. Now I can look at people as image bearers just like me. I can now look at people and say, that could be me, that should be me. We're done in just a moment. But I get passionate about this because if our church is going to be the church Jesus wants it to be, it's going to have to be filled with people that have the attitude that Jesus has towards others. And so it's convicting for us. But convicting toward a good end. Let us see how proud we are. Let us see how religious, yes, but not spiritual we are. And let us come to our God and ask His forgiveness. And ask Him to change us and change our mindset to the mindset of Jesus who looked upon the crowds and the Bible says He had compassion on them, no matter who they were. If you've never come to God through Jesus, I invite you to do that. Realize that you're a sinner. Jesus and Jesus alone has done for you what must be done to have a relationship with God. He lived a perfect life and that perfect life allowed Him to be your sacrifice on the cross without sin. sin, He, without sin, took your sin and paid the penalty. You repent. That means you're going to follow God now. Go His way rather than your way. You ask Him, to forgive you, to apply what Jesus did to you. You do that now as we bow together. Our Father, thank you for James' penetrating words. We know that ultimately they've come to us from your Holy Spirit and that they are as relevant today as they were nearly 2,000 years ago when first penned. Lord, I thank you for the surgical knife of your word that cuts to the heart and shows me my hypocrisy, shows us our religiosity but lack of Christ-likeness. Lord, I pray that brothers and sisters here are crying out to you, asking for forgiveness, confessing that our attitudes about ourselves and about others are not in line with what you say in your word. And I pray as well that there are some who are coming to you through Jesus for the first time, receiving what he did on their behalf, believing who he is, God the Son. Lord, we love you because you have first loved us, and we thank you for the work you're doing in us and through us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.